finished. We made it. We've done it. It's happened. It's over. We it's survived. Over. <laughs> I know, but it was good fun though. It's great, wasn't it? It's uh, it all feels it all feels a little bit of blur because we're still in it, but that's also I think when we thought it was the best time to have a chat about it on the pod because it's weird in a couple of days because the grass well it's already started, hasn't it? But our grass court season hadn't started yet, but other people's has. And then suddenly you're onto the grass and you're like, "Wow." What happened at Roland Garros? I can't, what? So we thought, let's just, it's, it's quite late, but it's still fresh. There's still a lot of stuff going on in there, but it, it's your, okay. So I immediately say to you, your standout Roland Garros memory, your highlight was, is? Oh, well, the, the Djokovic-Nadal clash, I think. That's uh, coming at such an early stage in the tournament. And yeah, I think that's got to be the moment. It was uh, such an epic match and it was just yeah it was brilliant it was a night session it had it all going on um for me that was the moment of the tournament how about you so it's a great match that was a biggie wasn't it that was what meeting number 59 was incredible was amazing um it's weird i asked you that and now i'm sitting here going um well i mean it's a tricky one isn't it the final wasn't a classic it was never going to be a classic but the result was a classic does that make sense yeah, well, yeah. I mean, Nadal wins comfortably. What a classic. No, but as in, <laughs> the result was a classic because it's 14 from 14. Yep. It's 22 grand sometimes. That's the classic part. Is That's the sort of, oh my, how, how does he keep doing this? That's the classic part. The actual matchup wasn't. There was a fear that the whole master-apprentice scenario might play itself out. So, yes, that wasn't a classic. But the result, so in terms of match the tournament, of course not. The result that it was 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 absolutely phenomenal i think the zheng shiontek match for it was for a chunk of it a large part of it that that was fantastic to see her push to see her stress to see her figure out and then zheng actually obviously had the problems as well to go with it um but yeah but nadal Djokovic is i have to say the first well the three hours and three minutes of zverev nadal it wasn't it wasn't good tennis but it no. was, it was the drama of what could have been. It was the drama of where we were at, and it was a horrible fall that Zverev took. And it sounds like it's pretty nasty from the initial things we're hearing about tearing um, ligament, lateral ligaments in his foot. But I think it was the drama of what was. An, how long could that have gone on for? How long could that have taken? I think it was on for five hours, and that wouldn't have even been five sets. I reckon it would have been a four-set, five-hour battle it was that was absolutely extraordinary that match I mean remembering that second to that 44 shot rally was um really awesome to see I mean it was completely devastating for Zverev it doesn't matter whether you like a player or you don't like a player whatever the situation is you don't want to see that that was really awful to hear him screaming like that and clearly in so much pain and then you've just got 15,000 people look at you whilst you're just in so much pain and going off the court in a wheelchair and then coming back on in crutches. It's it's just awful all round. Um, it might have saved Rafa though, because <laughs> Svera was taking a good few lumps out of him. I mean, who's to say he wouldn't have won that match? <laughs> I, I, I remember as, because uh, we were working for different people here, I was commentating on it with, with Courtney Nguyen. And I remember we were both saying, obviously we didn't know how the match would ultimately finish, but there are no winners here. Well, yeah, the winner's the next opponent. But in terms of they're just beating themselves up, you know, it, it was almost uncomfortable to watch at times because you thought this is it, it's so slow, it's so laborious, and they're going to be absolutely trashed at the end of this. How do you come out of a match like this with anything left? I mean, as it is, it was over three hours and it wasn't even two completed sets. I mean, as it is. I know it. 93 minutes for the first set. It's longer than a football match. I mean, what? what? <laughs> that's what we said on commentary. We were like, well, that's a football match done. I mean, what is that? I mean, how is that? And then the second set starts taking the same pattern. And you think, well, hang on a second. And I remember at five all in the second, I had to hand over commentary to, um, to Marcus Buckland because I was running back to do TV stuff because I thought I could easily do the first semi because we're on air at seven o'clock every night. And then suddenly I was looking at my watch thinking, oh, well, hang on a second. <laughs> was, uh, oh, hang on a second. So I had to rush off. And then I got up to the TV thing. My producer came in and said, well, okay, so we've got highlights of that match. Now it's over. And I was thinking, what do you mean it's over? 
switched on the television. I was now back in the office. Oh, you missed it. I missed it. Because I'd been running back and, and the radio sort of off-site. So I'm coming back through security, all my bits and pieces, running up the stairs, having to sort out sort of TV bits and pieces, getting everything done. Put the monitor on in the office where I was sort of getting everything ready for the show. And suddenly I was like, oh, oh, okay, yeah. So I saw the replay, the replay. But yeah, I I'm, I couldn't believe everyone was saying, well, now that's finished. And I was like, well, how can that be finished? So... It was so weird, the vibe of it as well, though, because everybody was dawning on them what was happening, especially because after the first set, yes, it was 93 minutes, there was always quite a significant chance that Nadal was going to run away with it. And then he broke into love first game of the second set, and we thought, okay, Zverev looked absolutely gone. And we just thought, yes, that was an epic first set, but we weren't thinking five hours. And then as that second set progressed and we got to about five all, we were really like, okay, we are going to get another night session here because i think the match the second match is going to go on later than a normal night session start and we were very much settling in for sort of a five hour battle there and so and just as we'd got our heads around that and it was okay we're we're in the thick of it here this is going to be a long physical brutal slog and that's what we were talking about then it just so abruptly ends um was yeah it was it was very very strange i mean it was just such it was just such a shame you know it was a uh, yeah a real a real killer for Zverev and i you know look from everything that we've heard he's going to be out for a while and that is very disappointing at this stage in his career but um yeah just very unfortunate we had a couple of these Leila Fernandez looks like she's out until august because she has possibly broken a bone or something on her foot and so she was on crutches and going to get a little bit of treatment and I think while we're on feet, crutches and problems, we have to talk about Nadal mm. because it was something he shut down early on in the tournament. And he said, look, I'll I'll tell you what I am doing to manage it at the end, which I thought was really sensible. Because otherwise, keep asking, keep, ask, keep asking. He said, look, I'll tell you at the end. Then Mark Lopez, one of his coaches, said, we think the foot is going to be fine until Sunday. And we obviously now know the reason why, because... I think it was maybe the second... I, I was reading the... And I know it says a lot more on Spanish, but I was reading his um, transcript for the English press conference and the moderator, so who's hosting it, asks the first question. And, you know, blah, 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 blah. Then the first question was was about Casper Ruud. And you're thinking, all right, okay. And that was a very short answer. And the second one, bang, future foot. And, and he was very open in his answer because he had said, look, I... He said, I didn't want to distract from my opponents. It's not fair or the tennis. But now he's come out and said that he's he's going to some serious extremes or he went to some serious extremes to be able to function in the tournament. But they are not long term answers. Yes. And from what he's explained, it seems like I mean, I don't know much about this stuff, but it seems like he has managed to numb the nerve for the duration of the tournament. Um, but that's not a long-term strategy. He doesn't want to do it again. He said, I'm not doing it for Wimbledon. Um, And he's going to have a procedure done to basically permanently remove the pain from that nerve. If that works, he might even be at Wimbledon. If it doesn't work, he's not going to go back to the injections. So then it will be sort of back to the drawing board and then we'll we'll see where he moves after that. But he won't be at Wimbledon, I think, if if it doesn't work. So that's sort of his plan i guess um but it was pretty amazing to see it's incredible what these doctors and sports scientists can do right i mean he was talking about the match against mute and how he was struggling to walk afterwards he was in so much pain and to come from there to come through and take his title was just incredible and look that that's not an easy title it might have been a comfortable final but to beat ojal yasim in five then djokovic then Zverev, the epic couple of sets that they had, you know, that's no joke. That was a seriously tough draw. Um, and yeah, it overwhelmed Rude today, but, and, and I felt a bit for Casper. It's tough that the situation, the crowd, all of it is, was a bit too much, but can't believe it. 14. Wow. It's, it, it's crazy. I'm just reading a little bit more about exactly what he's, he's planning on, on doing and that they want to, they want to be able to sleep, in his words, the two nerves that create an impact on the foot that in, improves it. And they want to try, which is what the injections have done, they want to make a treatment to try to create this feeling permanently. And he says they're going to try radio frequency injection on the nerve 
and trying to burn a little bit of the nerve, oh, it doesn't sound nice, and create the impact that I have now on the nerve for a long period of time. And as you say, he says, we're going to try it. If it doesn't work, we'll go back to the drawing board. But then he said, look, a major surgery that doesn't guarantee me to be able to be competitive again, it's going to be a long way back. I don't think I want to do that. Then he was asked how many injections he had had at the French Open. And he said he didn't want to talk about the amount of injections he's had. And as you say about Wimbledon, he would like to be there. And I think there was so much talk around, was this going to be his last match? And it still could be. You know, if he cannot find a solution to this problem, then maybe it still will be. There were those that thought he might do like a mic drop, you know. Thanks very much, 14 and out. I, I never, I couldn't be in that group. I didn't think that was going to happen. So there was a lot, and I know there was... Didn't you love the rumours, though, of, uh, oh, Federer's flown in to do a special, like to do a special presentation and all that sort of stuff? And we knew that that wasn't the case because we would know about something like that. Um, but do you think they were like, the media, maybe but... they just hid Federer in the cupboard just in case? You know, it was one of those, yeah. you know, we had all the retirement, uh, the retirement ceremonies, like Gilles Simon, they had to keep putting them back in the cupboard because he kept winning. Whereas Joe Wilfrid-Songa lost to Kasparu, as was expected, and everyone could come out and say goodbye. Whereas Gilles Simon, it was like, quickly, hide, he's coming. And you kind of thought, maybe people, I just didn't think Nadal, look, I don't know him personally, but I didn't think his character was, was of such that he would stand there and say, you know, uh, by the way, everybody, this is it, it's over. It might be this is it, it's over, if he cannot find a problem. to, th Because as he said, you know, those injections... It makes it dangerous because your foot's gone to sleep. So what about twisting your ankle? What about turning your ankle, the movement you have to do on the clay? I mean, that that is, that's dangerous to be playing like that. Well, they've just got to make sure that he's not doing more damage to the foot yeah. because that's one of the big problems with taking painkillers yeah. when you're injured is that you will keep on doing you damage. You won't be able to feel what you're doing. Yeah. So a lot of players actually hate taking painkillers because they want to know what they're dealing with. And... And but I think that does change when you get to the latter stages of your career. You'll just do anything, <laughs> take anything, drug me up. It's fine. I'll just go but, out and but, play. But do you know what I mean? We, we, even if you're an adult, I, I understand maybe doing the, the nerve thing and the foot thing because he was on on his way for 14. He was in the competition. But I would think sometimes at the end of your career, you won't do that stuff because you kind of realise about the damage. So I, I would think it was really the opposite way around when you're young. Your career's ahead of you, you'll do anything, take anything, try anything. But as you get older, you're a bit, little bit like, I've got, and Roger Federer spoke about this recently, I've got the rest of my life to live. You know, I want to be able to walk. Yeah. I want to be able to play football with my children. I want to, and Andy Murray with his hip, remember he couldn't, he couldn't crawl along those little, uh, you'll experience these with baby Rog, those little tunnel play things, you know, they crawl through those things. Mm. Sometimes you get, they get stuck in one of them or they don't come out and you've got to crawl in as well. And Andy Murray was like, I can't do that. I can't play with my children. And it gets to a point as you get older that the damage you are doing could then affect, maybe, I don't know, you're a little bit wiser to it. I would think it was, it was maybe the other way around I mean it can be I think it depends on your character really doesn't it but I thought Djokovic spoke really well about when he was asked by one journalist you know would you get a new foot would you lose the Roland Garros final if it meant you could get a new foot then um yeah I think he was very much like well absolutely I will will take the new foot I don't it's way more important because and the way that he explained it he said well because achievements sure you get momentary adrenaline and endorphins and you really enjoy that in that moment but life goes on it's like I was thinking about Marin Cilic this week all the way through to the semis and he was staying in an apartment with his kids and you know even straight after the match you know press warm down and stuff but then like you know you've got your kids to deal with life goes on whether you win whether you lose and I think a lot of people get so wrapped up in like the achievement is everything and actually I mean particularly when you've won it 14 times <laughs> surely you're like I don't know, 14, 15, what's the difference? I'd like a new foot, please. So, uh, yeah, I mean, these <laughs> these players, they know they've got life to live and it it's difficult. You know, we see former players around and, and a lot of them can struggle a lot physically. Um, but that's part of it. You know, every sport that you sign up to, you know, you're doing it to such an intense level if you're going to be a professional that you know there's going to be negative impacts on you. Um, and it's just about what the trade-off is. You know, I'm somebody that is getting punched or kicked in the head worth a career in something? Absolutely not. So, But for boxers, it is. And But for me, I'm then here sitting in a world of tennis where 
really at the beginning of your career, like, you know that the deal is if you have a proper career, you end up like Andy and, you know, like these players, and you're probably going to need new hips and new knees quite young. And and it can be difficult. You could get arthritis or, or, or whatever else. And, and And as I say, I'm talking about quite young, not at a normal age. And you weigh it up and say, yeah, I'll accept that. A lot of other people wouldn't. Um, but as I say, it's sort of different different levels and I definitely couldn't do something where I was getting concussion all the time <laughs> getting hit in the head to me that's just not worth it but then a lot of people look at me and go yeah but you know your hips are, are ruined and I, and I say well that's sort of worth it but are your hips ruined I'm not too bad because I got out quite early so I didn't play a full career but they're not brilliant and I mean I only played professionally for five years so and is that like um, not brilliant constant pain or you wake up in the morning and you go oh it's a bit stiff or is it when you do certain things that you feel that the hips aren't maybe what they were yeah just just generally stiff achy a bit sore it's not that bad at all but I know I can feel it getting worse quite quickly my left hip and my left um left knee so um yeah I can feel that happening I suppose but as I say, I've got out quite early. If I'd had a full career, they would have been absolutely destroyed. And I knew that when I was playing, I could feel it. You know, I I, I could feel what I was doing to my body. And I, it, you know, I, I was aware that I was, you know, I was on for having some new hips and new knees at, at some point. But, um, but now I might have got away with it, to be honest, as I say, because I stopped far earlier than I thought I was going to. I don't know what my excuse is. is my, I think my excuse for the, all the aches and pains and obviously not having any kind of athletic career. I think it is old age and lack of stretching. I think that's where that's where my aches and pains go. I can't say, oh, I played tennis on centre court and I hit millions of balls a day and that's why I've got dodgy bits and pieces. I think mine is just old age, running badly and not stretching. But there's has... normal stuff of getting older. That is just, that is just yes, not yeah. a normal part of it. That's fine. Everyone's going to get stiffer and, and all that sort of thing. But you know when it's it's because you've abused your body a bit. But that's what we do. We push our bodies to the limits and beyond. That's that's the point. Um, and I don't think anybody's done that more than Rafa. No, I mean, what he... Yeah, no, that's... Uh, I think there's... I remember years ago when we thought he wouldn't make it to 30 playing because of because of the knees. And we heard about the injections he was having in his knees. I remember there's one Wimbledon who's having an injection in his knee every day, his knees, the tendonitis. And again, he was like, it's a chronic problem that I will manage. And I think we all thought at the time, he'll never be playing past 30. And here he is at 36, winning a 22nd Grand Slam title. Who is the most famous person you have ever played tennis in front of? And did you know they were there at the time? Or maybe you've never played in front of anyone famous at all? (laughs) Oh, dear. I mean, I don't think I played in front of anybody famous, to be honest. I mean, there probably was a couple of famous faces in uh, when I was when I played on centre court or something. But um, yeah, no, not from outside of tennis. Not that I'm aware of. Because I'm I'm thinking today was particularly star-studded as it should be but 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 I don't remember Roland Garros I know Leonardo DiCaprio tends to pop up every year right he's a regular although I didn't see him this year but this seems even more so than usual because we heard how many times you get two kings two kings watching not one but two kings there you go to start with can I say to Norway and Spain both there we had Hollywood royalty we did yeah Michael Douglas Yes, A list, A A list. Mm-hmm. We had Sienna Miller, British actress. Is she was known? she back today? Yes, same oh, seat. She was here she... for the semis, wasn't she? she same, was the seat. same seat. Okay. And then she had a gentleman with her. Maybe that is her gentleman, who then got ousted for Hugh Grant. Ah, well, there you go. I and mean, then it's fair enough. He was anyone who get thinking, the top for Hugh Grant. But I, I was thinking that playing in not so much for Nadal because I think. They're probably sort of buddies. But for Kasparud, and maybe he's buddies with a Norwegian royal family, because they're very sporty, the Norwegian royal family. But to, to come out, it's your first Grand Slam final. You're playing against your idol, one of the two men, along with your dad, who you say inspired you. You can rattle off every scoreline from every one of the 13 finals that Nadal has been in and who he played. And then you wander out, so you've got all that on your mind. And you look up and there's the king of Norway. I mean, that that, that has to do something, doesn't it? I imagine, I just... I just think it's quite overwhelming everything you have to sort of take in and deal with. Well, look, he got overwhelmed, didn't he? And, and you know, and it's completely and utterly understandable. It's just so much to deal with. I mean, I was sat 
inside the stadium um, and the noise, the, the support for Rafa is just, it, it's extraordinary to have that sort of cheer for one person. It's just yeah. unbelievable for one person. And, and you know, that's the thing that, yeah, maybe you get that at boxing, that type of, that type of support, but it's just so unique, I think, to tennis to have that many people just going nuts over and over again for for one person. I mean, the ovation when he came in, the ovation when they read out the years that he's won Roland Garros. It's just so funny every time, it, you know, and then there they add another one in. It's, it's awesome. But there's a lot of comparisons between Nadal and his football team, Real Madrid, because they've won the 14 titles and, and everyone's saying, oh, you know, Raph has matched it. So firstly, there's more than one of them. And how many people have contributed to those 14 titles? Because it's come over like 60-odd years to win the champion. This is the Champions yeah. League we're talking about. It's like 60-odd years and hundreds of players, <laughs> and they've won 14 titles. This is one person. One person has has um, has won it 14 times. And, oh, no, and I feel really bad, and I can't remember for the life of me who said it, but somebody tweeted. It was a former player. And somebody said, guys, seriously, like, Winning your local club tournament fourteen times is pretty much impossible. Let alone like the French Open. It's it's just insane. There's absolutely no words to describe it. Fourteen, just bonkers. Everything going into it. Everything going on. I just I just don't understand. I really enjoyed though the video that the ATP tour did, where they started doing this tennis IQ thing, where they were quizzing, um, they were quizzing the players. Um, and I think it started with Sebastian Vettel in F1 because he could list every single world champion. And they did one where they got a group of them in Indian Wells and they were quizzing them on um, Roland Garros champions between 2000 and 2021. And Rafa was one of the players participating. <laughs> and they, they said, how do you think you're going to do? And he just, you know, in his modest way, just said, quite well. <laughs> <laughs> I think I'm going to do it quite well. And then there was just this clip of it, because it started at 2021, you had to go backwards, and he was just going, me, 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 me. <laughs> Obviously, he got every single run right, and he, he won it above everyone else. But I did think it was funny. It's only a kick. A jump. A block. It's only a serve. It's only a tackle. A run. It's only for the fans. After all, it's only pressure. You got this. Adidas. So I saw these stats and this is, this was after going two sets up and it left myself and Elna Presson were commentary and, and analysing, left us speechless. So he's two sets up in Kasparud. The mountain's big. How's Rude ever going to start to scale it? These are the stats. So after Nadal goes two sets to love up, this is before today's result. He was 12-0 and 0 in major finals, 8-0 at Roland Garros, 33-0 in major semifinals and finals, 91-0 at Roland Garros, and 236-1 and two loss to all majors. I mean, I'm I just genuinely speechless with 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 figures like that. Doesn't it, make any sense. How does that doesn't how make does any someone, sense? I mean, they are ridiculous numbers. I mean, ridiculous. Right. Okay. You might be able to help me with your better knowledge of a wider oh. wider sport. But in what name somebody else that at thirty six years old is at the very top of the game, like he's probably going to end up being num world number one at some point as well because he's now got two slams and Djokovic will lose his Wimbledon. Possibly. He might keep some of his Wimbledon. We're waiting to see. Um, but in, in what other sport is that happening what, that is this physical? Because this is just ludicrous. This is what's supposed to happen in golf where you get 40-year-olds who are winning these sorts of things. This isn't tennis. This is insanely good. Like, it's just unbelievable. This is such a physical, brutal, one-on-one -on -one sport. Like Everyone talks about how it's gladiatorial and all that sort of stuff, and it is just... So maybe, it doesn't make any sense. But no, so maybe, so maybe... And look, I know everyone's saying, yes, but he could do the calendar slam. He's already got two of them, and et cetera, et cetera. Oof, yeah. but, but maybe enough is there for enough. You talked about how brutal the sport is. His body is beaten up more than most. Roger Federer got pretty lucky 
really. He's only had the injuries in the last couple of years or so. Djokovic has had the one elbow problem, but I'm sure, as we always talk about, there's always pain, there's always niggles. But Nadal is beaten up more than most, has been dealing with chronic problems more than most. So maybe now is the time just to stop. And, and I know as addictive as it is, do you want to stop? But maybe someone should sit him down and say, look, fella, 14 is incredible at Roland Garros. 22, and you say you're not, or his team says he's not that bothered about that number anyway. But that number is pretty damn good right now. It's two ahead of the other two. And one of the fellas ain't going to be doing any more numbers on that. And the other one is going to try unless he self-implodes. And you might need a new this and a new that. And we don't know about the foot. Just stop. You know, maybe someone should just sit him down and just say stop. Enough is well, it's enough. It's up to him, isn't it? And I think he he's made it perfectly clear. If there is a way for him to compete at that level, he will do it, unless it means massively sacrificing, you know, his his body and his his situation. There are gonna there, there are limits, but you know, he will do whatever he can. I mean, he was even talking about potentially if this procedure works, he could be a Wimbledon. So he. Yeah, I mean that's it. That's the mindset. There's there's no backing away. It, he's only going to stop if he cannot find a way to do it. I just think when is when is it when is enough enough? Can I name someone else that put themselves through? You know that there are there are some really brutal sports out there, and people maybe not footballers. But look, I know I know footballers who you know, knee replacements, hip replacements. I work with I work with one football, a former footballer, and we'd sit down to do a show, and maybe the show was two three hours was sort of sat behind a desk and and he would take him five minutes to get up at the end because his knees were so swollen he would have to on a weekly basis drain the liquid from his knees you know I'm not talking Nadal levels of intensity or training but I'm talking someone who had a professional career who put himself through that etc etc you know and, and he couldn't walk and I know footballers that have have new bits or or need new bits and I can imagine basketball players the shock they could go through cyclists you know every every sport will do damage if you're playing at such a high level for so long I know Nadal's game especially is is a lot is a lot more brutal but I don't know at one point enough's enough like we've talked about this before Andy Murray says you know he sort of regrets it a little bit you know everything he did would he change it maybe not but everything he did completely screwed his body and he's, he's, yeah, managed... he's still going isn't he he's not stopping <laughs> no but no, he's, he's playing a challenger in Surbiton but he's got metal bits to his body now <laughs> so I just I don't know at some point I just think I know it's your life and I know it's all you've pretty much ever known and look you were very different you got out very early there was another life that you saw for yourself to combine with tennis and I think you're really lucky and I'm not saying it was easy and and that you didn't miss you know tennis or you haven't missed it at some point but you saw another life you got out you formed another life and and you took it but I know these guys you know at 36 I just I don't know it it's knowing when to stop and although I didn't expect him to stop today if I heard at some point this year he was going to stop I don't I don't think it would necessarily be a bad thing because there is still a lot of life afterwards only he knows really only he can make that decision but you know, did we see vintage Rafa? Look, he played very, very well against Novak Djokovic. He was pushed hard against Verev, but I don't think we saw him at his absolute flying best. And he still managed to win the title. You know, his 90% is good enough. Um, so, well, it is on Philip Chatrier, isn't it? So, yeah, I mean, look, it's just up to him, isn't it? But just... What an extraordinary achievement. I mean, every year we say this, but it's surely the biggest thing in, in tennis. And the task for Casper today, got a feel for him, because there is a very strong argument that it is the toughest challenge in all of sport is to take him on on court, oh, Philip yeah. Chatrier. Um, a very, very strong argument. I mean, we would obviously argue that, but we're from the world of tennis. I know people outside might say otherwise, but, you know, it, it, it's just monumental. It, it's It's monumental, and I think also when you feared for Kasparov even more because during the earlier rounds, has the body, will it hold up? Is he going to have enough left in the tank to do seven matches, seven wins in two weeks? But it was just one match. 
this was the final. This was one match that he needed to win. And that makes him even more dangerous because however the body's feeling, and we didn't know at the time that he'd sort of put his foot to sleep. But even if there'd been that pain, you would have thought he will just do anything to drag himself over this finish line. It is the final. It's on Philippe Chiatri. Everything that goes with it. It's, it's, um, it's astonishing. And can I say that my pick one? Thank you. Hey. Hey. And my dark horse which no one could believe. Every time I said my dark horse, because we picked them on radio at the beginning, everyone was like, Do you, what? My dark horse was Marin Cilic. I mean, awesome Yay. dark horse. What a great choice that was. Yay. Well done, Marin. Um, well done, you. Well done. In the women's, obviously, went for Svantec, because slightly nuts if you didn't. Uh, dark horse Anna Samova wasn't quite successful, but Iga Svantec, how, she, how she's dealt with the pressure of being such a ridiculous, Ridiculous favourite. I mean, such an overwhelming favourite to win this competition. And she did it and she dropped one set. And I think it's from this run from February, which is that last loss to Ostapenko is now, what, 35 matches. She's dropped one set of tennis, one, from the semi-final onwards in tournaments, which is, and that's Nadal-esque. I mean, that's, that's incredible. It shows what she's like when she gets it by the kind of throat and she gets to that meaty end of a tournament. She's the best player in the world. Easy. Yeah. Just by some margin. Um, similar to Rafa, but in a different way. I don't think she played her best tennis. I don't think we saw any of her best tennis, Svantec. I think that she was really trying to deal with the expectation. She was just dealing with the challenge in front of her. Was trying to do enough to make sure that, that, that the door was closed on her opponents. And... Uh, I don't think we saw the best of her because I don't think she was really genuinely pushed. I know that first set against Zhang was awesome and, and mm. Zhang did push her there and it was a challenge. Um, but, it, it, yeah, I mean, it, it's just, again, sort of playing 8 out of 10, 9 out of 10 and she wins the tournament comfortably. It's sort of like the Serena era, era Steffi Graf, just being that that comfortable. Um, you know, Goff just couldn't get anywhere near her in the final. And, I will say that for both of the finals, it was a bit of... It was unfortunate because, of course, you've got first-time Grand Slam finalists playing against people who've been achieving lots. And I know that Shiontek only has one Grand Slam, but she has a huge amount of experience, world number one. You know, all of that counts. But just the tactical matchup for Rude was a nightmare against... Yeah. Nadal, we know what it's like. If you have the same game, but you're not quite as good, you tend to get chopped up. That's just how it goes. It was how it went for Sharapova against Serena that sort of did the same thing. Serena did it a lot better. It, it's it's just how it, it tends to work. Djokovic does it all the time to these really great hard quarters. He just completely destroys them because he's just that much better. And it was really difficult for Rude. I mean, yes, they're the two heaviest forehands on tour, um, but his for his backhand was just getting ripped to pieces by that lefty forehand of, of Nadal. I mean, ripped to shreds and just left on the floor. It was unbelievable to see that shot get dismantled like that. And then for Coco Goff, we would bring it back to the women's because that's who we're talking about now. For Goff, one of the things that impressed me so much through this tournament was how well she was counter-punching, particularly off that forehand wing. It was so good she was finding the baseline off it you know forehand's always been a little bit suspect it's improved out of sight but the movement hanging in rallies that sort of rally tolerance of sort of how long you can go before feeling like you need to pull the trigger was so impressive the problem was is that playing at Siontek you can't play like that because you will 100% lose and the only way for Goff to play that final was to just be really aggressive and to get on the front foot and start pushing Siontek around and it's just not how Goff has been playing so it, it just it was unfortunate because not only were Goff and Rude both having to deal with the occasion deal with the opponent deal with the crowd deal with all of it they then just purely down to the tennis were way on the back foot anyway so uh, I think that's why they were fairly one-sided what was it for you about what Pagula did against Fiontek because Fiontek would look back and say that she felt that was her best performance of the tournament and and Pagula had she had opportunity. A lot of people say she, she played far from her best tennis. But why do you think Shantek would have looked at that matchup with Pagula and, and highlighted that as her best performance? Um, I don't know, really, to, to be honest. I don't know why um, she was able to find her, her best 
level. I mean, as I say, she was just dealing with the challenge in front of her and the challenge presented to her by Pagula. I think she just looked a little more comfortable in the rally. She she didn't let yeah. herself get overwhelmed. I think that was that's really key with Sfiontek because she's so good at overwhelming people. You have to stop her from just coming at you like a train. And um, Pagula did a really good job of that. And she just forced it into a neutral situation a bit more. And yeah, Iga came out on top and worked it out in the end. But she just took that runaway train edge off of it, I think. And only for a brief time, because then Sviontek obviously worked out how to do it. And then she was a runaway train and she was just just charging. But yeah, I don't know. I think it was interesting that Pagula said afterwards that it's the emotional pressure that she felt facing Fiontex and not just what she was getting from what was coming off the racket, but just the just how mentally she kind of crushes you, which if she's doing it physically and mentally, uh, and she's already in she's in the heads of other players, yes, they all want to be the one that gets the scalp. She is she is the hunted. Everybody wants that scalp. Who's gonna look, she's a lovely person, but from a competitive point of view, I want to get that win. I want to break that run. I want to be the one that beats her. The fact that Schwantek's able to deal with this and, and already the players are getting that sense of fear. Fear when they face her, that emotionally and, and mentally she will have the control is uh I just think I just think it's phenomenal how she's dealing with everything. It is scary, though. Can you imagine walking on court, on court Philip Chatrier against Fiontech, knowing that there's quite a strong chance that you lose love and love? Like, <laughs> it doesn't matter who you are, because this is what Nadal has done to people for years. And it's yeah. a, probably a little bit less so now, but we, we were, if you rewind that sort of five years ago, that sort of thing, you would be walking onto quarterfinals and you would think, I'm not sure that his opponent's going to get many games here. I think he rolled through Bautista Agut, like one, two and one in a quarter. Like it was, it's just, and, and that is a very real fear for players that they are going to lose love and love or love and one. It's going to be over in 45 minutes. It's embarrassing and that they just can't compete. But that's what happens when you play these top players and that's the aura. That's, everything that comes with it and I mean we saw Casper he lost did he lose 11 games in a row to lose the match in the end I mean he just fell up he just disintegrated but he just couldn't live with it he couldn't live with everything going on and that's why you're just at such a disadvantage and we always talk about the experience of these players the experience of Siontek because it's so draining going through new experiences and you're having to do that at the same time as playing the world number one and it's it's just oh my gosh it's just I don't know how anyone can really, really cope with it. I think it's been it's been a great tournament all round for for the matches, the stories, the night sessions. I know we we had some. I was it was on the so the Thursday. So the night sessions begin on the first Monday. So you have Sunday without a night session, and then we go through, and then the Thursday is the women's semi-final so that's when we normally organize our radio dinner because even if they're epics, you're still going to have an evening. Right. So that's because, you know, that on Ben's semi-final day, as happened, it can, it can go long, could have been longer, et cetera, et cetera. So I remember thinking and I said, I've, I've loved the night sessions and I've, I've I worked them all. But I was really craving a hot meal because, you know, you find you're running around all day. So I'll grab a I was trying to avoid baguettes, as we know. So I'd grab a salad or, or something to, to eat at my desk while I was sort of, you know, and then in the evening, because it was night sessions, I didn't really, I wasn't eating properly, basically. I was craving hot food. I don't know why I've suddenly got onto this, but I was craving a hot meal. And as much as I love the night sessions and the atmosphere, on the Thursday, we had our team dinner and I had a hot meal. And I was, I was, I was craving escargot. I was craving really French fare. You know that feeling when you just think, I haven't really been eating properly. You know, I've just been... Well, it is difficult when, when tennis is going on for like 12, 15 hours a day. It's really difficult to <laughs> actually sit down and have a meal. Um, and yeah, it was one of those things because normally French Open, by the time you get to Thursday of the second week, you're sort of fed up of going out for dinner all the time. Because you've had, and, you've, and yeah, you know, yeah, and French yeah. food can be quite rich Very and saucy rich. and all that sort of stuff. And there's only so many steak frites you can go through and... <laughs> in two weeks it's not good for you um but then this time it was the first time anyone had a chance to have a dinner at all was Thursday and I know you weren't the only one I mean yeah everybody was missing missing dinners because you just sort of you do the matter before you know it it's it's midnight so you just oh okay great <laughs> I'm just gonna go to sleep then and, and, um, and you and do just how it is and it's not asking for people to have sympathy for us because we're really lucky to be at these tournaments but the diet can go 
can go haywire. Like I had the same salad every day for 15 days, which is healthy. But that's just weird. No, no, there's no, no, need. Word there's word. no need. Is it that. weird? Now, it's not necessarily weird. But I they think have so many different types of salad. But I wanted, I wanted to be healthy, so I didn't want one full of pasta. A lot of them have pasta in. A lot of them, I just wanted, I just found one I liked. I, well, is it? So I, I just found one I liked, and it was my like go-to. I'm quite, I'm quite routine because I had it's, it's very much like Groundhog Day. Grand Sam's can be like Groundhog Day. Yeah, you know, you have. You have your routine, you're doing it, you kind of, you're on air at this point. And I had, with the TV thing, I had to be quite organized and had, so I just, I took the same thing, but then you kind of snack on bits and that's not really healthy. And you're thinking, oh, so I've got myself to blame. I'm not asking for sympathy. And I did eat some baguettes at some point. I, okay. Uh, yeah, well, that's I, good. I well, there we go. You know, when you you're just get no sympathy. You know, when you just get so tired, you're like, I actually going to have a baguette. So it's a little bit, you kind of grab, but going back to, how I deviated there from night sessions. I enjoyed them and it's an atmosphere and I know they can go on long and I know there's discussions to be had, etc. But I, I like the atmosphere. It's it's a good crowd. The French crowd is a good crowd because they will boo you. They will cheer you. We had bands and we had all sorts of things going on. And you've got to say, especially after two years with one year with no crowd and one year with 50% crowd, there were some there were some fantastic, fantastic atmospheres for the matches. Yeah, I thought the night sessions on the whole were brilliant. Yes, yeah, just too late and, you know, not enough women's matches. So that's to be resolved. Um, but, uh, yeah, I mean, the night sessions, I have a love-hate relationship with night sessions because I get they're brilliant. Like The night sessions at US Open are just mega. It's in the city that never sleeps. It's the middle of the night. It's just, it's so good on, on Arthur Ashe. And I know that we have them in uh, in other in other places, obviously at Oz and now at French as well. Um, my my main issue with them is the impact that it has on the players. Like that's that's my main problem with it. Um, and I think that it, it sort of it needs to there needs to be a limit. You know, we can't have what we've had at Australian Open some years where players have been walking on court at two o'clock in the morning. Like that is just nonsense. It's tomorrow. It's not today anymore. It's tomorrow. <laughs> what are you doing? They're not on the schedule for tomorrow. They were on the schedule for today. So I think there has to be some limits with it because I just think it's so unfair on players and we always see players crashing out after those late, late, late matches. It just happens so, so frequently. There's no way you can readjust from it. So, but if it was just kept a little bit more reasonable, then um, it, is a, it is a really magical part of the sport. I just wouldn't have people walking on for a match after 11pm because I just think it's silly. But, other than that, I think, you know, sort of go at it. And, and some of the late nights are, are really epic memories as much as we don't get any sleep for two weeks. No, we don't. You sort of get to the end. And, and, and some people, certain people hit walls at different times. And you know that, you know, you go in in the morning, you look at someone and go, oh, there's the wall. And they've just slammed into it and slid down it. <laughs> yeah. And others keep that. It's partly why I do my running in the morning. People think I'm absolutely mad. But I think it, it keeps me from hitting the wall, as weird as that sounds, because... You'd think the extra exercise would make you more tired. Do you, mm. Does that? Yeah. Yeah. Um, no, I don't know what you're talking about. No. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> but weirdly, maybe I just told myself, and it. But yeah, it's. Uh, no, th- we're really lucky to to work on these tournaments. You know, they're, they're brutal at times with the hours, but uh, it's yeah. Some of the matches, some of the throws. Someone I think came out glowing was was Coco Goff. I mean, look, she's she's 18. Uh, she was in two Grand Slam finals this weekend. There's going to be so many more to come for her. But the way she speaks, you know, you know, you talk about role models, whether people want to be role models or not. Um, people look look up to players, especially those at the top. They listen to them. They are influenced by them. And having someone at 18 standing on court saying things like, you know, you love yourself and don't worry what other people say and follow your dreams and something is, I think it's phenomenal. I think I think I think she. I think ultimately we might remember, I think she's going to have a crazily successful tennis career, but we might ultimately think of her more for what she does off court because I think there's an awful lot to come from her. She's just incredible, like just incredible in so many ways. I mean, we just feel so lucky to have her in the sport. I I mean, 
how inspirational she is. I mean, what 18-year-old knows who they are and what they're about? Because that's some of the things she's been saying is like, oh, yeah, no, I really know who I am. I've got my voice. I know what I'm doing. She's obviously very confident. What 18-year-old knows that? <laughs> what? You're supposed to figure that out when you're 30. This is ridiculous. Okay, that but, might be a bit late 30, just to say. Okay. <laughs> 25. 25. But, you know, it, it is... Um, it is just so impressive and it, it it sort of makes your jaw drop when she's speaking like the way that she speaks she's so in control um she talks to the microphone and to the camera as if like they're her best friend like in you when you're when you're watching her speak you just sort of feel like she's just chatting to her friends and you could just be like hey coco you could just have a, a really nice cool chat with her i mean she's she's too cool for school I mean, she's obviously world-class. What a talent she is. I mean, she could have played in the junior tournament if she wanted. Well, she couldn't once she got to the fourth round because you're not allowed to play two tournaments in the same week. But you know what I mean? She was young enough to play in the junior event. And, um, yeah, I just think she is um, so impressive to be able to deliver that. And But also the other part of it is, like, the self-esteem. Because a lot of girls as teenagers have such low self-esteem and it, it is really, really difficult. I'd probably say the majority, I think, struggle in general, much more so than, than guys do, although plenty of guys struggle as well. And for her to just stand there and be like, yeah, I know I'm great at tennis, but I know I'm a great person and that's more important to me. Just to be able to say that you're a great person, like that is not easy for a lot of people to believe that and to think that and for her to just be like yeah I'm a great person so you guys just be great be awesome and like we're all gonna have a good time it's just I'm just like yeah I want to get on the cocoa bus oh, yeah. <laughs> I want to go there it's but, like a but, proper feel-good factor but isn't can it you, I can't imagine her um maybe tantrums I don't know whether 18 year olds do you call them tantrums maybe meltdowns but I can't I'm not saying that I had them or you had them at 18 but still at 18 you can be a bit bratish can't you if, if things aren't but I can't imagine her being like that I just imagine her I'm sure there are moments when she is an 18 year old at home and her mom or a dad has to say Coco stop it or do this or don't do that maybe maybe they do maybe they don't but the impression you get is you just listen to her because she talks a lot of sense and you just she's she's so wise she's so wise but when you think I mean it, four years ago she was 14 and winning the junior competition 14. But also it's that she believes it. She believes that she's a great person. Like, you know, she's, Sviontek's the same in that a lot of the time players will, you know, for Sviontek, they will say things, you know, about the psychology and, oh, you know, I just take one match at a time and I know I might lose at some point. But she really believes it. Like, she really does it. That's why she's so successful. And it's the same with Coco Goff. She stands there and says you know like you guys just need to be good like it's more important for you to be a great person than it is to be a great tennis player and she believes that like that's the thing is like it's very easy to say but you know that she she does and uh Oh, I just, oh, I just think she's awesome. I love her so much. I'm so pleased we have her in us again. We're just so lucky to have this bunch in our sport. It's just phenomenal. Yes, we've got the greats like Rafa, and of course, and we're incredibly lucky with that. But yeah, someone like Coco just, oh, you just wanted to do well all the time, don't you? Just come on, Coco. At 14, I was probably being told off in class for talking always, sitting at the back and just nattering. Yeah. Hence, hence the career now I just talk <laughs> um, and being told to sit at the front and to stop talking she's winning a junior grand slam and and probably making as much sense talking as she does now I mean it like some people are just wired differently <laughs> but it is amazing how uh, and, and she looks she'll have been through some ups and downs and trying to figure out who and what she is and the expectation and the comparisons to everyone but I think she's doing it so well. I think I think the core of her family around her. I think it's uh, now look. She's phenomenal. I, I'm glad she's there. I'm glad they all seem to get on well, largely. Uh, and I think it's an amazing bunch. And yes, at the moment we have an overwhelming standout runaway train, but it's not always going to be like that. And we'll uh, get other players back to fitness, and others will start to move forward. And I think uh, we spent so much time recently talking about the men's game and what are we going to do once. You know, we lose them and we're starting to lose them. Bits of them are falling off. And, and who's the next generation? And who's the next Federer? And who's the next Djokovic? And, oh, and we've just sort of let the women's game sort of tick along. But I think it's really exciting to see those players who are either fulfilling their potential or have really sprung up out of nowhere. And and I think it's, uh, 
Yeah, no, I, I think it's really exciting. I think I think this tournament's been great. I think it showcased a lot. I've also learnt two things. Do you know these two things? Do you know what grape scissors are? They are scissors that have grapes on them. What? <laughs> <laughs> I thought if I said it confidently, it just might be right. What? They got grapes on them. So, but do you know, so you don't know what grape scissors are? No. I mean, I no, I didn't know this till a week ago. They're scissors to cut grapes with. Right. Okay. Well, that seems unnecessary. No, I think it's the most pointless thing I've ever heard of. So basically, you know, you. Well, what? What's wrong with your fingers? You pull a grape off. Why do you need a knife? Well, if you want to cut it in half for like a salad or something, use a knife. Cut it in half. Well, what do you but, need yeah, grape, grape scissors, scissors for? Grape scissors are. They, if you want to cut a little bunch, like a little bundle of grapes, you, you do a delicate little cut with a pair of... No, they're, I don't know why I'm making it. They are the most pointless thing right, so in the world. They're not in a standard kitchen drawer, are they? No, I think... And whenever I hear about grape scissors, and a, a joint friend of ours, I don't feel I should name her, a joint friend of ours um, has an antique pair. And when she said she had an antique pair, it made me feel they haven't made them this century or for a while. Yeah, possibly. So that's the first, first bit of the quiz there for you. Uh, a banana hanger. Banana hanger, yeah. I've seen banana hangers. Do you have one and would you use one? Uh, I don't have one. I don't use one. Uh, but there's something to do with bananas shouldn't be in a fruit bowl because I think they over-ripen the rest of the fruit. They speed up ripening okay. and they can make it go bad. Possibly. I think that's why you have a banana hanger. That's my understanding. I might be wrong. No, so possibly for a housewarming, I now know what to get you. Yep, sure. Uh a banana hanger and have you ever slept in or would you ever sleep in a yurt i have slept in a yurt so yes i guess well isn't that just a tent called a yurt it's just a it's just a more permanent tent yes what do you mean a permanent tent? a more permanent tent it's not a permanent tent but it's a more well what's a more substan- permanent it's tent more if not substantial a because you know it's not like a little pop-up tent that you just sleep in it's just a piece of fabric you might as well just be have like have not being anything at all but yeah it's like it's a bit it's a bit more substantial so that they're just three things i learned and talked about this week aside from the tennis i just wanted to that i just wanted to mix it up a little bit. and the other thing i've learned is that tooth fairies in france pay a lot more than tooth fairies in england <gasps> do they oh, yeah oh, wow. so the tooth fairy in england paid five pounds for a front tooth yep. which I thought was rather over generous. I thought it was, you think that's you... pretty solid. Well, yeah, I think it's decent. Much. Yeah, only for the front four. Then we yeah. get lower down. So uh, the, the family dad took the boys half term to France to see oh, family. No, there was a there was a wobbly one. Wobbly one came out. Do you know how much the French tooth fairy paid for that tooth? Well, I imagine it's going to be like twenty euros. Yeah. Yeah. It's 20 euros. Wow. I mean, I mean that's, the kids are doing about, well, aren't they? Talk about setting a bar high and then that's ridiculous. So now we've got to pay. So they've, they just, they don't, 20 pounds effectively now a tooth. I have to work a lot more yeah, and exactly. a lot harder. <laughs> it's a shame Roland Garros is over. We need more days. Yes, I need to work more. But on that note, we, um, yeah, we wanted to wrap everything up this evening, Sunday night, just while it was kind of fresh and the madness is still there. But next up for both of us, onto the grass. Here we come. And I don't think I'll see any more of you than I have done these two weeks. In short. <laughs>